Okay, as all of you probably know, the name of this monastery, Karuna Buddha's Vihara, means the Buddhist monastery of compassion. And so Aya Santusika asked me, she said, don't give a talk on the conditional relations in the Abhidhamma, <laughs> but give a talk on compassion. <laughs> Okay, so, you know, it's commonly said that there are two pillars of the Buddha Dharma, wisdom and compassion. And both of these aspects are very intricately interrelated. But we could say that the seed out of which the whole Buddha Dharma blossoms and grows is compassion. And we see this illustrated even in the life, especially in the life of the Buddha, who serves as, you could say, the supreme model of compassion as aspiration, compassion in practice, and compassion in embodiment. In the early records of the Buddha's career, of his spiritual development, it's said that the Buddha first made the aspiration to Buddhahood when he met a previous Buddha going back many, many aeons of world cycles in the past, he encountered a Buddha named Dipankara. At that time, he was living in the forest as a ascetic, practicing states of deep meditation. Then when he met the Buddha Dipankara, he was so impressed, so awed by his spiritual majesty, that he bowed down before him right in the mud and formed in his mind the strong aspiration or determination to become a Buddha in the future. And what motivated that aspiration was his direct encounter with the sufferings of human beings and other sentient beings. And so he knew that he wanted to be, he could see that the Buddha is one who enlightens and liberates countless other beings. And so he himself was inspired by that great urge to be able to liberate many others from, from suffering. And so he made this vow to become a Buddha in the future. And from the Buddha Dipankara he received the prediction of his future success. Then for, again, over a period of many, many cycles, world cycles, it's said that he fulfilled the paramis or paramitas. You know, these are the sublime virtues that culminate in Buddhahood until his practice of all of these paramitas had reached fulfillment. And then we come in the Pali text that said that the Buddha is one who arises, who is born into the world for the well-being of many people, for the happiness of many people, out of compassion for the world, for the good welfare and happiness of devas, that's the deities, and human beings. So even the birth of the Buddha, his descent into this world, is a manifestation or a fulfillment of his original compassionate aspiration. And then, interestingly, when 
we look at the early text where we read about the Buddha's reflections that led him to go forth into the homeless life and to strive, practicing for enlightenment. In that phase of his career, despite what the later, sort of more legendary text says, if we go, say, if we go to the early text, the Nikayas, we don't see compassion mentioned as a motivation for that quest. But he goes because he's bound to old age, sickness, and death, and wants to find the way for himself to become liberated from the cycle of birth and death, from old age, sickness, and death. But then, after his enlightenment, immediately after, he's sitting in the vicinity of the Bodhi tree, and he's reflecting whether he should go out and teach the Dhamma, or whether he should just live the rest of his life, just passing the time quietly, peacefully, remaining in the forest, going into the deep, blissful states of meditation, and just letting the world follow on its own track. And initially, when the Buddha reflected on that choice before him, his mind inclined to quietude. It said that he looked into the world and he saw that the minds of people were so overrun by greed, hatred, and delusion, and the Dhamma was so deep and profound and difficult to understand. He thought, if I were to teach, people wouldn't pay attention, people wouldn't understand, and it would just be wearisome waste of time for me. So initially, he inclined to seclusion and solitude, but then it said that one of the great deities named Brahma, Brahma Sahampati, came down, appeared before him, bowed down, and said, Please, Bhante, the world depends upon you. You are the one who has practiced for so long. You are the one who is now fully enlightened. You are the only one who can awaken the world from the sleep of delusion. Go out and teach the Dhamma. And so, sometimes when I would read to him about real disasters taking place in the world, particularly I remember very strikingly, there was this um, massacre in Rwanda, 1993, where how was it about a million people were massacred? I don't remember the exact number. But I was reading the articles to him, and sometimes he would actually weep when he would hear reports like that. You know, it was not through a, a kind of worldly grief, but it was through his compassion. I saw that compassion doesn't mean that you just close yourself off, sort of insulate yourself from the world, and just think, may all beings be well and free from suffering. But he was really able to respond very deeply to the suffering of the world. And then I, I became the editor for the Buddhist Publication Society in 1984. And then we instituted a newsletter in, I think, 1985, where I had to write like the cover editorial essays. And so I felt that I had to start addressing problems that people in the world were facing. Not just that people get upset if they miss a bus, or they get angry if they stub their toe on the floor. But some of the great, you know, national and international problems that people are facing, particularly in Sri Lanka at that time, there was 
civil war going on, terrorism, uh, even you know, 1.2 civil wars going on at the same time. And then nationally, internationally, there were upheavals taking place. And so I felt that if the Dhamma is just going to be addressing people's inner states, but not, deal, not addressing these large-scale upheavals, crises, catastrophes, and gradually escalating potential disasters in the future, then it's not really do doing the Buddha's, the full extent of the Buddha's work, which is to deliver beings from suffering. Okay, then in 2002, I came back to the United States, I came to live at a, Ch a Chinese Buddhist monastery in New Jersey. It was called Bodhi Monastery in northwest New Jersey. In the year 2004, the end of 2004, a tsunami took place in the South Pacific, which struck Sri Lanka. And so Sri Lanka had to sustain a great deal of well, a major disaster. I don't remember what the death toll was, but it struck along, partly along the west coast, but it hit very badly the south, the east coast, and many people lost their homes, children lost one parent, two parents. It was a major disaster, really a terrifying blow for the country. And so I thought that I wanted to do something, since I lived in Sri Lanka for more than 20 years, something to help the country. So I wrote an email to send to my students and Dharma friends at Bodhi Monastery, which I did, but I also sent a copy of that email to my old friend Bhante Gunaratna, a Sri Lankan monk who has the Bhavana Society Meditation Center in West Virginia. Then he sent that email to everybody on his mailing list. And I also sent it to somebody connected with the New York Insight Meditation Center and she sent it to everybody on their mailing list. And so within about three weeks, we got donations came in to the tune of about $160,000. <laughs> and everybody was looking at me to make the decisions how to distribute the money. I heard that Google was compiling a list of charities that were helping Sri Lanka and the other countries, uh, Sumatra, part of Indonesia, India, Thailand. And so I thought I would distribute the funds to Buddhist organizations. And I looked at the list and I saw many secular organizations like Save the Children, Doctors Without Borders, Direct Relief International, International Rescue Committee, um, CARE, yeah, CARE was one. Yeah, so secular organizations a fairly large number of Christian organizations, and I looked into them. Not all of them were you know, bent on proselytizing. Some of them have their mission is not to proselytize, but just to display you know, the Christian virtue of love in action by helping needy people. A few Muslim organizations, a few Jewish organizations. I found only three Buddhist organizations. One was the Tsuchi Foundation, which is based in Taiwan, but has a U.S. branch. One was Sarvodia. Again, it's based in Sri Lanka, but it has a U.S. branch. And the third was the Dharma Vijaya Vihara, the Sri Lankan temple in Los Angeles, which set up a special fund for that purpose. 
So I distributed to the Buddhist organizations, but also to some several of the secular organizations to give relief to Sri Lanka. But this, you know, examination had something of an impact on my mind, and it was disturbing me. Because we Buddhists, we always speak about Buddhism as the religion of compassion. In the great, many some of the great Buddhist teachers travel through the country. Whenever they come up, people venerate them. Oh, Buddhism is the great religion of compassion. I remember one of my first books on Buddhism was called The Teachings of the Compassionate Buddha. But then I saw especially the way Buddhism is developing in the U.S., and especially, I have to say, amongst the, please pardon me, but the Caucasian, white, middle-class, upper-middle-class convert Buddhists. We think, I want to be a more compassionate and loving person, so I take to Buddhism. And then I sit in my little meditation room or the meditation hall, and I think, may all things be well, may all things be happy, may all be well, may all be happy. Then we, we come out, of course, we're more compassionate when we read about abandoned dogs and cats. We maybe make donations to PETA or the ASPCA to help the poor dogs and cats or we might give to some charities. But I was wondering, why aren't the Buddhists... There are some, Buddha, there are some Buddhists involved, actively involved in helping others. I don't want to give, paint an overly grim picture. But why aren't there more Buddhist organizations which are doing, acting to relieve the suffering in the world? Okay, these kinds of thoughts were brewing in my mind over several years. In the year 2007... The magazine called Buddha Dharma, it's one of the popular American Buddhist journals, asked me to write an editorial essay. They call it commentary. And so, since I've been reflecting along these lines for several years, I thought I would bring up that theme in my essay. And I did write it, and I said that we Buddhists treat, tend to treat... Um, the Dharma as, I don't remember the exact wording that I used, but as a private inner quest for peace and inner happiness. And we try to develop such qualities as mindfulness and clear comprehension. But while we're aware of what's going on from moment to moment, too often we seem to blunt ourselves to an awareness of what's going on beyond the walls of our rooms, our meditation centers. I said that it's really, it's a major ethical challenge for the Dharma in this 21st century. Are we really going to open up the doors of compassion and let that quality spread out over the world and directly help people who are bogged down in the most dreadful forms of suffering? And believe it or not, that essay was published with the title the editors gave the title to the essay. They called it A Challenge to Buddhists. I just called it Editorial Essay. <laughs> Thinking somebody's going through it, I'll say Editorial Essay. <sighs> what else is there to look at? 
But if you see a challenge, well, I want to be challenged, right? <laughs> what is this foolish guy challenging me to? <laughs> yeah, so as a result of the essay, I lost a couple of friends. <laughs> but a few of my friends and the students, I never showed the magazine to anybody. I didn't tell anybody that the essay was published. But I think some of them must have subscribed to the magazine because they saw it and they started talking amongst themselves. And then one day they came to me and they said, you know, we've read this essay and we feel that we've got to do something about that challenge. Then we started to have a few initial rounds of discussion. And then we started to f we make plans to form an organization that would provide concrete relief to people around the world who are undergoing you know, real dreadful types of <coughs> suffering. Initially, we made the mission of the organization, we put it to address people worldwide suffering from poverty, natural disasters, <coughs> and social oppression. But in time, we found, you know, it sounds glorious on paper, but it's not realistic, it's just too broad too wide, especially, you know, we're not funded like the Christian organization World Vision, you know, with bank accounts and the multi-millions, or like the care or save the children, but we're just a little upstart Buddhist organization, we got our initial donation from the old master of Bodhi Monastery, I think he started us off with a donation of $10,000. But with that, we started, we, well, we determined that we had to have a more specific point of focus. And what we took as our point of focus is the problem of global hunger. Because over those years, you know, as I was reading, once I came back to the U.S., I had access to the Internet. I didn't have access to it in Sri Lanka, only for email. Because we had the Internet access at the Buddhist Publication Society. I would come in, like, once or twice a week. There would be a stack of emails that have to be answered quickly, and to get on the internet was just so slow in those days. But once I got back to America, then maybe some will say, that's where he went astray. <laughs> that's where he got lost. <laughs> but I started getting, becoming more aware of what's going on in the world, and one thing that repeatedly struck me is the great extent of global hunger and the numbers of people that it's afflicting. I came to see that you know, ni over 900 million people around the world are afflicted with chronic hunger and malnutrition. And 10 million people every year die from hunger and hunger-related illnesses. And more than 50% of them are children. That's 5 million children a year dying from malnutrition and hunger. And so as we were trying to form a more specific focus, when those reports came to my mind, I thought, let us focus on global hunger. And then that became our mission. And so we started with a few pilot projects, and then we started to, mostly in South, Southern Asia, the initial projects in Vietnam, Burma, and Sri Lanka. Then we expanded from there to Cambodia, to India, then from there to 
projects in Africa, first in Niger, then Mali, Malawi, Kenya, then to Haiti after the earthquake of 2000, January 2010, and then a few projects in the U.S. So now within our lifespan of it's just four years, we've had, I think we have more than 50 projects in these countries. And we have a good team of workers, including Aya Santusika, Bante Guna. And the way we raise funds, as you probably all know, is through having walks every year. I saw that Sister Santusika had our brochures put on your seats. And for more information, you can go to our website. But this is just one example of a way to put compassion into action. The way I suggest, you know, not everybody feels a specific calling for this type of, this type, this mission. But what I suggest is a way to find your own specific mission. And I call this type of compassion, I'd like to use a more specific expression for it. Compassion is a very broad term, but I use now the expression, I call it conscientious compassion. And this is compassion which is motivating our conscience, not the conscience in the sense that I did something wrong and so I feel worried and remorse about it, but rather conscience is something that moves one to action. It's that sense that I just can't remain silent about this problem. I can't just remain inactive about it. But this is something that really speaks to me, that addresses my deepest, innermost conscience and that is pulling me into action, that's moving me to act. And I see that what is at play here is a kind of interweaving of compassion with another extremely important value and that is the sense of justice. Not justice in the sense of punishment for breaking the law, but what underlies, I would say, all forms of justice, social, economic, political, legal justice, is the sense that essentially, at the universal, impersonal level, every human being is essentially the same. That there should be no special privileges or prerogatives for some that are being denied to others in society, in economics, in political situations, in face of the law. That at this level of justice, we're all equal. doesn't matter how much wealth one has, how poor one is, what language one speaks, what religion one follows, what color of the skin, what's the color of one's skin, what one's national origins are. But everybody doesn't mean that we all, that we should equalize the income for everybody. That's not possible. There will always be differences in income. But at least the principle of justice dictates that everybody should have access to the basic requirements to lead a decent, rewarding, fulfilling, meaningful life that nobody should have to live in grave misery. Of course, there are natural disasters that can't be helped. 
but at the level of the functioning of, of the day-to-day -day functioning of society, that nobody should be denied the basic requisites of living a decent life. People should not be excluded from the political process because of their nationality. Well, nationality does function at elections. But because of their national background, ethnicity, and so on, nobody should be treated in a biased way before the law. Everybody should have access to the minimal requirements of a decent life. And so I see like the challenge, what I call the challenge of the 21st century is to make the world work for everyone, all over the world. No matter what continent, but no matter what country, we should do everything that we can, especially to level the massive disparities in wealth, power, and privilege between the so-called North and the South, within each country, between the economic and political elite, and everybody else. So this is a major challenge, which has many dimensions, economic, political, ecological as well, including our use of energy, um, our systems of agriculture. Okay, so now, the way to find one's special calling, which I derive from Andrew Harvey, who is a good friend of mine, even though we haven't met for about three years now, but this is what sort of method that he laid down, and I've developed it in my own way, is to sit, choose like your quiet time for meditation, let one's mind settle down, then one takes a number of topics of problems that are facing humanity in the world today. It can be the problem of global hunger, could be the problem of climate change, could be political injustices, it could be economic disparities, could be the human treatment of animals, it could be the modern method of warfare, you know, drone warfare, the US involvement in wars in the Middle East, could be what are some other topics that I'm missing? Racism. Racism. The, Injustice and incarceration, let's say the disparity in incarceration, a real major problem. Violence against women. Violence against women. Choose, excuse me? The sex trade. That's, that's really, that's really something which is really shocking and, and yeah, shocking and, yeah, the use of GMOs, but now California has its chance. Don't. Don't blow it. <laughs> don't, exactly, don't blow it. You guys get out there and be sure to vote. Be sure to vote on um, election day. Vote. Yes. In favor? I don't want to say. Yes. In favor of. Yes, yes. Support the proposition. That's the label. No right. on GMO. Yes, okay. Be sure to label GMOs. Okay, anyway. We're also voting on the death penalty. That's extremely important also. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. You get the idea. You, you make up a number of areas, then go through those areas, you know, just a few minutes with each, till you might feel certain things pull you 
either because they're, they resonate with you emotionally or you might have some skill, background training that could contribute in that area. Don't make a decision at once, but go through this process. This is where I differ from Andrew Harvey. He says, when you feel that particular problem calling you that first night, that's your calling. But I say, don't make the decision at once. Maybe that's my Buddhist <laughs> way of being patient and um, investigate carefully. So go through the process again and again. You know, It can be day after day for a week, two weeks, till you find something continuously pulling at your heart some way that you could contribute in real, concrete ways to alleviate the suffering of others and to make the world better. And then once you find that calling addressed to yourself, that should be the basis on which you can act. But also I want also to say that not everybody is called to be a social activist. This is something that I've recently had to learn in order to, not to, to impose my enthusiasm upon others. <laughs> that some people feel called to live a life of quiet seclusion. Like that is their way of contributing to the world in a way. So if somebody feels, after testing the waters of social activism, they still feel pulled to quietude, seclusion, purely contemplative life, then I say that continue along that track. Don't close your mind to the suffering of the world. Bring it into your meditation and use the heart force of your meditation to act upon it. But it's too easy for us to use that as we used to use the expression cop-out. Is it still used, that term? spiritual bypass. Spiritual yeah. bypass. Okay, that is, yeah. But I think spiritual bypass is used in a different way. That's used in the sense for avoiding working with psychological problems in order to try to zoom right into higher states of consciousness. But the cop-out is you know, getting out away from any kind of social responsibility for social action and social transformation thinking it's just enough for me to remain in my little quiet hut, meditating or studying. May I ask you a question? Yeah, in fact, I was just going to say that <laughs> now I've come, I think I've come to the end of my talk, but I want to throw the floor open to questions. So please well, go ahead. One, one of the things that you mentioned when you talk about um, the, the global problems in terms of hunger, yeah. is in this country we have horrible problems of poverty. Yeah. Americans are in huge denial about it, or else it just isn't covered enough in the media for people to understand what life is like in the inner cities of this country. That is exactly so. Yeah, yeah. that's not a question, that's a comment, and I agree with that comment. Well, it's, it, but even as you made your presentation, people's hearts will go to someone who's starving in Africa. Yeah, in Asia, yeah, and yeah. have a hard time having opening their heart to someone who's star starving in Burlingham. That is so. That is so. Yeah. <laughs> and there's what I found, you know, through reflection, is that there are three great forces that are working together. You know, we speak about interdependence in Buddhism and interconnectedness, 
There are three great forces that are working in harmony with each other, which are keeping, sad to say, Americans very much in the dark about the situation in this country and around the world. The three great forces, one is because of the great economic disparity, there is that very small privileged elite, extremely wealthy, you know, millionaires are not even to step, able to step into the, across the threshold of their homes. You know, if you don't have a billion dollars, even if you have a billion dollars, you know, you're still lower, low class for them. But the people who are in the multi-billionaires, well, if you have a billion dollars, maybe you'll be in the head. <laughs> okay. But this, you know, but the financial, corporate, power elite, so that's one big part of this picture, the unholy trinity. The other side is the, one, the other part is the, uh, so in this elite there, the, let's see, the corporate elite, fossil fuel industries, the financial, the heads of the financial industries, the head of uh, industrial agricultural companies, chemical companies, industrial, military industrial corporations that make all of the weapons of war. I'm sure there are many others. The pharmaceutical industry, the healthcare industry. High tech. Yeah, probably high tech also. Though often because some of the high tech people come from like sort of hippie backgrounds, they could be a little bit more open minded. But there are some in that category. I mentioned the military industrial and weapons complex. Okay, then the second part is the political system, which because of the way electoral campaigns are run in this country, they depend upon massive donations from their sponsors, their supporters, their donors, who are often these forming these political action committees, especially after Citizens United, to funnel large amounts of money into their campaigns. Okay, and then the third part of the unholy trinity is the mainstream media, which has turned turned information into a form of entertainment. You know, they call it infotainment. So sometimes when, when I'm at the monastery, I get access to the real news because I can go to the alternative news sources for my information. When I go to my father's house, he just has ordinary television. So I have to get the news from usually Channel 4. <laughs> it's not as bad as, well, we don't get the Fox Channel, Fox Cable Channel. But always it's, they treat every news item in a rather superficial way. Then they always have to end each program with something that's a little bit entertaining, entertaining, uplifting, humorous, so that you go away with a happy feeling. But you don't get really deep probing, ruthless analysis of national and global problems today. Okay, this is question time. So. <laughs> Bhante, you, you spoke eloquently about these sort of top-down uh, pushes on, on our global situation, but there are also a number of bottom-up um, yeah. things like population pressure. 
yeah. that I think are, are also very difficult to address. And um, within the context of my practice, yeah. um, I, I don't really know how to, um, to address that. Yeah, population pressure, of course, is one thing that's contributing to, say, the, the growing endangerment of the world. But also there's one thing that we should bear in mind when we speak of population pressure, and that is that, say, one child in the U.S., as that child grows up, will consume so much more than a child in South Asia or Africa will consume. So, you know, it's a matter of multiplying the number of people by the demands on the environment that that person will make in the course of their lifetime. So I think, you know, to achieve some kind of ecological sustainability as well as this greater social and economic justice, we're just going to have to transform our social system and our lifestyle to be able to live more contentedly with less and to have but this will come not through reverting to more primitive lifestyles, but by upgrading to a more ecologically sustainable transportation systems, which will be much more energy efficient, and will need. Well, this is also this is a real problem with the whole corporate capitalist system, and when we hear what is the solution to the problem of unemployment. We have to get money. This is from the liberal economists. Not austerity, but get more money into people's pockets so they'll be buying more, which will put pressure on the economy so they'll, the firms will have to start hiring more. So unemployment will go down. More people will have jobs. But then when, you have, when you're creating jobs through encouraging more cons consumption, then there's more pressure on the natural resources and more waste and destruction being inflicted upon the natural environment. So it's really, it's quite a conundrum to get through. I just want to come back a little bit to the point that you made about poverty within the U.S. and the amount of hunger within the U.S. I mean, this is really true, and this is something that we've be at Buddhist Global Relief that we've be become aware, aware of. Like, when we started, we were always thinking, you know, South Asia, then Africa, then Haiti, but then we started learning in the U.S., what is it, one out of seven people relies on food stamps to have enough food to eat at home, six million people in this country have no other source of income but food stamps. Six million people have no other source of income but food stamps. Well, and, and, and what food stamps can buy is really not enough in terms of healthy food. Yeah, food yeah, yeah. I think it's what also I think it's one out of seven people is living below the poverty line, mm -hmm. and even what's called the poverty line is sort of artificially low. Was it twenty-three thousand dollars a year for a family of? Four, but what's said to be the level of income that a person needs to live, not luxuriously, but comfortably, what's called the living wage level of income, would be an annual income of $46,000 a year. So that's twice 
the minimum wage level in order to be at the living wage level. So people who have just what they call the minimum wage, which has just stagnated for the last 30 years without any real increase, it's not enough to, to even often it's not enough to be for a parent to be able to feed two children. Not to speak of getting some games for the children or taking them out to a movie once in a while. What is that? Healthcare. And healthcare. It's just, well, don't get me started on healthcare. <laughs> it's criminal. I mean, every other country, advanced country in the world, has some kind of national healthcare provision. But here, we don't have it, and it's just unnameable, unmentionable within the halls of, of Congress. Let's face it. As one engages in um, all these activities, yeah. as someone who follows the Buddhist path, um, yeah. how will he or she go about it differently? Will they go differently from any old somebody out there? Yeah. And if so, how will it be different? Okay, this is a good question. So maybe we put the question is what kind of values does can somebody draw from Buddhism in order to engage in socially transformative action? Okay, I'd say that okay, several values. One thing is that the action of a Buddhist person should be motivated by compassion and by loving kindness. And also the person when often when we engage in social action, we have to stand up against very powerful opposing forces. And there's a tendency, what I've seen in many of the like grassroots level social movements for people who are espousing the ideals of equality and universal love to give way to anger, recrimination, to grasp their point of view with the idea, I'm right, you're wrong. And even when there are groups of people united in the same cause, when there are differences and points of view between them about how to go about it, it can cause factioning into different, or splits into different factions. So, when we go about this action as Buddhists, first we should be motivated by compassion for the people that we want to help, and also for the people who are obstructing us, realizing that, in a sense, they are also locking themselves into into cells of suffering, even though they might not be aware of it, but through their greed, their pride, their arrogance, they're creating suffering for themselves and for their family, as well as for other people. And so we'd be motivated by compassion for them through the Buddhist idea that we shouldn't cling to views, we should be open to hear the points of views of others, and then to reflect back on our own views and see whether they have to be modified, altered, replaced with other viewpoints. Also, some of the virtues of Buddhism would be patience and equanimity. So when we engage in socially transformative action through patience, we don't become angry we don't become insistent that we have to see the results immediately. But sometimes we recognize that we have to wait patiently until the particular cause that we're advocating will be 
accepted that the changes we're trying to make will take place. And through equanimity, when we fail in our endeavor, we recognize that this is the nature of the world. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. You have to keep on persisting according to one's vision, according to one's aspirations, but don't be upset and despondent when you fail, and don't turn back upon yourself and think, I am a failure, I'm incapable, I'm, I'm unskillful. Another way that Buddhism helps, I think, is because the Buddha teaches the principle of causality, conditionality, when we look at great social problems, what I've learned from Buddhism is to investigate what are the causes of these problems. And at one level we could say that you know, what Buddhism teaches is that all suffering arises from basically from the three unwholesome roots, greed, hatred, delusion. And we recognize that greed, hatred, and delusion are forces in individual minds. So we, but we also have to recognize that today, greed, hatred, and, and delusion have a way of taking on an institutional form, say, become embodied in systems. But these systems are really, when you get down to the root of it, systems of human beings. And so perhaps, you know, action has to occur through transforming the minds of human beings to make them wake up and then see how the greed and hatred of others might be harming them or how their own greed and hatred are inflicting harm on others. The way this, uh, one way in which this came, affected our work at Buddhist Global Relief, this way of in analyzing in terms of causality. You know, we started out with the project of alleviating global hunger. That was, and all of our projects in the first year were working at that level. But then we started to inquire, like, what are the causes that are sustaining global hunger? Why is it that some communities remain mired in poverty, particularly in certain other countries? And one thing that we found you know, through reading on the internet as well as books on the topic is that one of the sustaining forces behind poverty and hunger is the subordinate status of girls and women in many traditional cultures. And so we found projects that are supporting the education of girls, and we've linked up with organizations that are engaged in that to co-sponsor projects in Cambodia, now Vietnam, to provide food aid to the families of schoolgirls on condition that they keep their girls in school and don't force the girls to drop out to work to support the family. And so we've had this project now for three years, and some of those girls are now they finished, through, through this project, they finished their high school, and recently we heard that 50 of them in Cambodia have gone on to college. Yeah, and we're supporting their, supporting those girls in their college, college career. Please. Monte, thank you for your talk. You know, you mentioned just now education, and I, I was thinking about, uh, in so many countries around the world, yeah. There are actual Buddhist in educational institutions yeah. at all different yeah. levels. Yeah. And we don't have that in the West. And I wonder if you see that developing here yeah. or if yeah. you find if you could speak to how that development might occur or Yeah, I say that this is really very, very necessary 
particularly in families with children, was, well, I have to say a little, to get a little candid now. <laughs> okay, when I became interested in Buddhism, period about 1966, 67, there were so many young people my age, you know, 22, 23, like we were, like Buddhism was one of the things that in that generation you became interested in. And people attending the talks when there was like sometimes Buddhist monk or Japanese Roshi coming in through the U.S. in those years. There would be like the college students, graduate students going to hear the talk. And even back in those days, a few years later, like I started giving talks on Buddhism in Los Angeles, 71, 72. There would be like young people coming. Now, when the, I say in Buddhist communities that I talk to. <laughs> we a little older, Bonte? <laughs> it's a little bit like one time I was invited to give a talk to the, it's in Colombo, Sri Lanka, the YMBA, Young Men's Buddhist Association. <laughs> so I come out, you know, front of the stage to give a talk. I look out over the audience. I see gray hair. <laughs> Bald heads, not shaved heads, bald heads. (laughs) I'm thinking to myself, did I get the right building? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so it's, I see the people who are mainly attending Buddhist centers now are like 40s, 50s. It's important to get younger people educated and trained in Buddhism. It doesn't mean... What I've heard from like some parents who have Buddhist children, this is like the... I don't know the expression to use for people who were born and grown up in America. One time I used the expression indigenous Americans. <laughs> no, but then somebody objected and said, no, that's not the right expression, because that means we call the native or first peoples of written... If we say white Americans, they're not all white because we have African Americans and even Asian Americans who grow, are born and grow up in this country. I don't know what to, But anyway. American born Americans, okay. Okay, so anyway, what I've heard from them when they have children, they say, my parents might have tried to indoctrinate me into Christianity. I don't want my children to have the same experience with Buddhism, so I'm not going to teach any Buddhism to them. Let them come to Buddhism on their own, if that's their calling. But this is not a matter of like indoctrinating, because the Buddhist way of teaching children is not like, you see, you know, if you don't follow Buddha, you're going to go to hell. (laughs) Buddha loves me. (laughs) So I'll go to heaven. But, get to hear Jataka stories and so it implants naturally a love for the Buddha and then the Jataka stories are generally conveying, conveying ethical qualities and they teach the children the five precepts the ten types of right action the values of loving kindness and compassion and then also the basic ways to show respect deference piet- filial piety 
So it teaches good virtues, important virtues to children and brings them up in the right way. And then as children get older, then they can come to more you know, advanced levels of Buddhist education. Did you have in mind when you spoke about Buddhist education, the sort of training of children or education for adults or... My particular interest is in is in you know university level training or yeah. adult level training oh, and yeah. and, um, and women in particular. But that's yeah. that's yeah. my particular path. But I, in general, I was I was thinking about Buddhist universities. You know that um, that that's one aspect. I know that there are attempts to set up Buddhist universities, yeah. which do not function. Ex- they're not so far. They're not focusing exclusively on Buddhist studies, though they do have strong departments of Buddhist studies. Like one is the University of the West that we visited a few days ago. It's in Rosemead, California. It's affiliated with Shilai University. I'm sorry, Shilai Monastery. And they have programs in Buddhist studies and Buddhist chaplaincy, but also they have like secular areas of, of study. Maybe... I don't know what particular programs, but it's not only Buddhist studies, but one could undertake Buddhist studies there. Then in Berkeley? GTU. Uh, excuse me? At GTU. GTU, yeah, it's the Pacific School of Religion, is that what it is? It's, that's the Institute of Buddhist Yeah, that is the Buddhist Institute, the Institute of Buddhist Studies, which is part of the... GPU, Graduate Theological Union. And then in Ukaya, there is the uh, Dharma Realm Buddhist University, yeah, which is it's affiliated with the Dharma Realm Buddhist Association. And they're trying to develop a sort of bro- what they call a broad humanities program with an emphasis on Buddhist studies, but not exclusively Buddhist studies, but also bringing in like Western philosophy, literature, and exploring that in relation to, to Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Well, and I say that as a way of bringing Buddhist values and Buddhist social justice yeah, 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 to yeah. people's early life and, and as part of their thinking about how they develop as, a, yeah. as an adult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. compassion work. <laughs> I don't know, but you see the word I use the word shaking because that's a, lit- a literal derivation of anukampa. Kampati means to shake and anu means along with. So it's not to be taken literally that one shakes physically, but it means that the heart, I say the heart is moved by the suffering of others. So certainly in the case of the Buddha, his heart is moved by the suffering of others. But it would be an extremely refined type of compassion. Excuse me? It's called Mahakaruna. Yeah, Mahakaruna, great compassion. Did you have a question? Yeah. 
Um, so do you, did you find that when you were speaking earlier of like the, the root cause of hunger for people having to do with um, girls and women, do you find that same thing in the United States? That it's coming from the same place or that that same intervention? Like I'm thinking about New York a lot since the, um, since the storm yeah. and like stuff I've been hearing on Democracy Now! and mm. really speaking about the income disparity and yeah. people who are really hungry and the places that are getting service. And I mean, it's, it's an amazing reporting they're doing and speaking to people. And yeah. I just, I'm wondering. Was it gender based, the way of. Yeah, like if, if the same, if the same, mm. like the same way that you answered, I think was your question. Somebody, the same way that you answered the question of understanding, yeah. like some of the root causes yeah. and the place of girls and women. If you're finding yeah. that same thing in the United States and the places, or like in New York, when you're looking at. So you're there. talking about the relationship between the oppression of women, poverty, and population growth, maybe. Those are no, all, all connected. Yeah. But that's what le keeps people in poverty a lot of the time. Yeah, but right? I don't think she brought up population growth. I think it was just whether right. the same kind of exclusion of women can be found in the U.S. Well, no, not, I'm just curious if you're finding, like, when you're looking at, at the hunger issues in the United yeah. States, yeah. if you're finding the same kind of root causes that you're speaking to so that you would make the same kind of interventions or different interventions. Is the construct different? Yeah, I haven't... I don't. Yeah, I. I don't think it's so much gender-based in the U.S., but it is. There is a, largely like an, an economic factor, a racial factor, and um, the factor of ethnic origins. Like those who are immigrants tend to be excluded from distribution more than people who are born born in the U.S.A. It's a little bit different. And is is um, Buddhist global relief? Doing any direct interventions right now in New York and New Jersey? Like, is there any? Is there any response? You mean for the for the? So, like, what's happening right now with, with the storm? Yeah. No, we yeah. don't work in that way. In that way. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. That takes emergency relief organizations. Uh -huh. What we do, you see, we have like a certain period generally where we just we get over a longer time we get pr project proposals. Uh -huh. Then we have a board meeting where we evaluate. Before the board meeting, we look over the proposals, we evaluate them, then we choose projects to support. Um, what we've done with in the United States so far, we've supported the initial contact with, was with an organization in Western Maryland. It's called Garden Harvest. What they do, they have a large plot of land where they grow crops organically, and then they have on their land, a, a policy they call adopt-a-plot, where groups from the cities mm -hmm. around there, especially Baltimore, can come and take a plot and grow crops mm -hmm. to bring for their own communities or to bring to food distribution centers. Mm -hmm. And then the other crops that they grow at Garden Harvest, they ship around the country to free food distribution centers. Mm -hmm. That was our first project. Then more recently, we've supported a project in or program in San Francisco, there's a church called Glide, mm -hmm. which distributes free food, free meals every day, three hundred six, three meals a day, I think, 364 days a year. And a similar organization in New York is called City Harvest. Mm -hmm. 
in New York City that does a, a similar thing. It's, but it's, it's not working through a church. But what I would like to do more in the future is to support like inner city, these projects where they find vacant lots, mm -hmm. vacant pieces of land, and they grow crops you know, in a healthy, organic way, the distribution to the needy people in the neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. I think that would be a way where our contributions would really make a difference in helping. Yeah. Coming from the East, uh, when you try to reach out with compassion, even in American uh, culture, I found that the sense of entitlement is something that very different that, than the East. The East, you look more like, okay, we okay the way we are. People are happy despite the fact they have nothing. But over here, the sense of entitlement, yeah. somehow just like, I deserve this. Is that almost like conflicting between being compassion versus the other side. Mm -hmm. People suffer their own consequence. If you choose to do certain thing, you take your you take your action, take yeah. certain action, you live with the consequence. What, what would you say to them? Maybe I'm not quite sure that I get the question. Some, Maybe some, phrase it more simply. Okay. Some people when people that need help, yeah. some of them feel entitlement. Yeah. yeah. And say I deserve it. You know, I don't like the way now in current discourses word entitlement is being used. Uh -huh. I have to say it's an example of how language can be used in order to give like a biased perspective on people's social situations. Uh -huh. Like they say that social security, they call programs like social security, Medicaid, Medicare, entitlement programs. But these are programs at first that either people need, that they really need, and um, or, or programs that people are really entitled to because they, it's their earnings that have gone to support those programs. Mm -hmm. And so when people say we have to preserve secure, social security, have to preserve Medicare, Medicaid, then the critics, which are usually the right wing, you know, extreme right wing people say, ah, they want to preserve these entitlement programs. But then when they go crying for tax cuts for billionaires, they don't use the word entitlement for them. But they say, these are the job creators. These are the people yeah. who work hard, who have invested their life in pulling themselves up on their, by their own boot, bootstraps. And many poor people really do work hard and they're getting, I've seen this going on in New York City People who are working at airports, as security guards at airports, as clerks in supermarkets, they're getting minimum wages. They want an increase in the minimum wage, which they haven't had in years, and they're getting slammed by the employers that these people are crying for what they call their entitlements. 
you know, they, they have to live and they need decent enough wages to support them. It's not they're like living recklessly and then expecting the government to support them. I want to point out this community is a complicated problem. And we sit here yeah. and we have our attitudes about what the right things. Yeah. And my in-laws are from West Virginia. Yeah. And they grew up in poverty. They work hard to have a decent living. Yes. I was talking to my brother-in-law one time, and the thing that bothers him is he gets up early to go to work. He works hard. Yes. He sees his neighbor, his woman next door, got herself pregnant. Mm-hmm. And she feels she should get welfare. And the boyfriend moved out, mm-hmm. and he goes to work. And when I speak to people in our community about that, it's completely shunned out and not listened to. So it's Mm -hmm. an example of how people on the left are clueless of people on the right thing. And also there are a lot of people on the right also who are, Mm -hmm. I I, I work with certain people, I mean, their ideas in Obama, I don't know what planet they're from, they talk about (laughs) it. And we need to be sensitive to that. Look, I mean, uh, it's, it's a different perspective when people mm-hmm. talk about the people who are in Thailand. I think I know yeah. this woman was talking. Yeah. And also, there are, there are a lot of Asians. For instance, at Ajahn Jeff's monastery yeah. in San Diego, they have a rule at their monastery that is a political free zone. Mm-hmm. That there's no political justice. And the reason for that, he serves the Laotian and Thai yeah. community. Yeah. And a lot of them from Orange County, a lot of them are Republicans. Yeah. And they came here to America with nothing, and they worked hard, and they built themselves yeah. up. And so it's a much more complicated situation than we put it out to be, and I encourage people to broaden themselves to try to see this yeah. and understand understand what other people uh, think and feel. Yeah. I just want to say about the political free zone, it seems to me that there's a difference between taking up political positions in the sense of speaking to support this candidate, that candidate, this, well, sometimes I do speak about supporting specific propositions. But um, I say that many issues that are cast as political issues are also ethical issues. And it seems to me that if Buddhists just take this attitude that we have to completely avoid these ethical issues with political ramifications, that we're not fulfilling our full responsibility. Well, absolutely. I mean, yeah. Ajahn Jeff yeah. definitely knows what's going on politically. He has certain opinions. Yeah. He also has this responsibility of training monks there. Yeah. And uh, we see signs for Metta says Metta, yeah. free from animosity. Yeah. And when you have people in heated political discussions, they actually understand yeah. where he's coming yeah. from. Yeah. yeah. Okay, this one over here. So I wonder what you think about this. I see a connection between compassion and generosity. Yeah. yeah. And so expressing compassion yeah. f- freely without yeah. any strings attached or any yeah. judgment yeah. Um, seems to me perhaps a way to avoid some of the, um, the problems of, of exercising compassion where you may make a mistake and feel compassion towards someone who does not feel that they need to receive the compassion. Uh, sort of like what this mm. woman was speaking of. Mm. Um, and then your compassion is an intrusion. But if you are giving freely, yeah. without any strings, without any views, without any notions, yeah. Yeah. just from your heart, 
then it seems as though you might be able to avoid some of the uh, potential misunderstandings that could have arise. What do you think about that? Certainly, generosity is an expression of compassion. But I say, this again gets us into the the nitty-gritty social issues. There can be people who are not, say, receiving the generosity of others. Mm-hmm. And so, in my opinion, it then becomes the responsibility of the state to support people so that nobody has to go hungry and deprived of the basic necessities of a decent life. So even the woman who is unemployed and gets pregnant and has a child, we don't want to let her and her baby go hungry and come down with diseases, which then have to be treated by the hospital so it becomes, in the long range, more costly. Or if we just complete, don't give them any treatment, then they die. You know, before policies like Social Security, the progressive income tax, um, the various social programs of the New Deal were instituted, many people, both black and white in the South, were severely malnourished, the death rate was extremely high, and it was those types of programs that saved them from severe starvation, malnutrition, early death, and just through sheer personal generosity from, on the part of compassionate individuals would not have been enough to rectify that situation. Okay, was there a question? We're getting, it's getting late, so we'll take one more question from somebody who hasn't yet asked the question. Please. I have a question. Yeah. So I'm from Sri Lanka. Yeah. And so in Sri Lanka, like a lot of we have poor families. Yeah. Most of, most of them, we are like Buddhists. So what we do is like if we can't I mean, raise that kid or something, we donate that kid to the Sangha. Yeah. Which is like one way he'll get nutrition and everything, and then the yeah, other way yeah. he'll get the most valuable gift. Yeah. I mean, if we raise him, we can't like, yeah. give him that Dharma gift, but yeah. he will get it. So, in here, if you have something like that, is there an open door? Like, yeah, you can welcome a kid. Or, or there are other, other bonds, like, uh, you know, laws mm. and anything or the other that is like cutting that door. Like, you can't give a child to somewhere and then, you know. Well, I don't think the monasteries yet are in this country are in a secure enough position, or well, a position that's well enough established to take in children. I think first there's the law that children have to go to the school, the regular public school. Though we did see when we were at the ordination in Los Angeles, the day of the ordination, <coughs> came from Georgia, was it? I think so. Was she Cambodian or? The, um, there were two children, the Samanera and the Samaneri. Uh, from the south, yeah. Yeah, yeah but what, where, what country originally came from? I think it was Cambodia. Yeah. Girls or boys? Both. One a little boy and a little girl. They were brother and sister. The boy had been ordained as a novice monk, Samanera, oh. and the girl as a Samaneri. Oh. And <laughs> I guess they must have been living at a... I didn't get a chance to talk to... The mother brought them. I didn't get a chance to talk to her enough to find out the details, but <coughs> I heard that they do go to ordinary school. Mm. Mm. I think the answer is not. not, <laughs> not <laughs> but it's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. So if you like one way to grow the 
community, Sangha community. Yeah. And other way, it's like, it will, I mean, go to all the other populations. And yeah. And the And one consequence of that is, so. maybe here it's not so necessary, but in Asian countries, it helps to control the population. Because you get, <laughs> we need more monks and nuns. You get a large portion of the monks and nuns committed to celibacy. Okay, I think we'll have to close for the um, for the day. So, thank, thank you, you for Dante. maybe. Do you want to have some closing words? Mm, or do you have anything to say? of Karuna Buddhist Vihara, we very much like to thank Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi for coming quite a long distance. Um, he he was he was sick before he came, before he got on the plane. And that was oh yeah, that was a, a week or two ago. You know? And then uh, we didn't actually know if he was going to come. And we we would have we would have told you. If, <laughs> but, um, I I was. I was waiting for that email, and I was looking and looking. So we're we're very glad that he he was able to uh, recover and to come out to uh, California. So so this has been great that that um, Bhante's been able to to help open Karuna Buddhist Vihara like this, and um, be nice to close with a chant, um, chanting the uh, the Metta Sutta in English. And for those of you who know the, the words, please join in. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and Yeah.
radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness. One should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being free from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Okay, thank you all for attending. Yes, thank you thank all. You. And now you know that there is this Buddhist monastery in Milbray. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.